0: Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. This week, our host, Dr. Paul Karpecki, catches up with an old friend and colleague, Dr. Gary Wirtz, a board-certified ophthalmologist who specializes in all forms of laser refractive surgery. Gary is a practicing physician with Commonwealth Eye Surgery in Lexington, Kentucky, and founder and chief medical officer of Omega Ophthalmics. He shares the exciting possibilities that the Omega Gemini refractive capsule holds for cataract surgery. Take it away, Dr. Karpecki. Hello,
1: and welcome to the OIS Podcast. I'm Dr. Paul Karpecki. I practice in Lexington, Kentucky, and today I'm extremely excited to interview a true close friend. In fact, someone I worked with for three years. And if I look back over my career, those might have been my three most enjoyable years. I mean, I really think of some great memories of learning a lot from Gary, of just always being kind of almost pushed as we kept, you know, pushing ourselves further and along and different ideas. And in actuality, what we're going to talk about today was something he even introduced to me at that time. And I was just fascinated about the potential, but you know, the, the ability to take an idea Uh, through fruition is a whole other level, but Gary's been able to do that. And so today I'm honored to have Dr. Gary Wirtz. He's a board certified ophthalmologist, specializes in all forms of laser refractive surgery, including femtosecond laser assisted cataract surgery, all laser LASIK. He works with optometry, ophthalmology. He's one of the most respected surgeons in our community, provides a teamwork approach to eye care. He's currently a practicing physician with Commonwealth Eye Surgery here in Lexington, Kentucky, and founder and chief medical officer of Omega Ophthalmics. Gary, thanks for joining us today on the OAS Podcast.
2: Oh, Paul, it's, it's always good to talk to you. Um, you know, I just want to echo what you said. You know, it's so nice to talk to a friend. a a colleague and, and, you know, those three years, you know, there's some hilarious memories some patients that we got to take care of together. And I also just want to echo, you know, I think I learned uh, as much or more from you in those three years than I have from any, anyone I've worked with. And so I just want to say um, it's, it was always a a real pleasure working with you and I, I count it as a real blessing.
1: Thank you. I do too. I mean, even getting through some of the times in those years and then things we did to get through just are great memories I'll cherish for a lifetime. But uh, it's exciting to get to interview you now and uh, not from that clinical standpoint, we'll bring a little bit of that up, but actually from an innovative, an innovator standpoint, just in terms of what you've been able to achieve. And I think you can share a lot of insights with our listeners, uh, help them. And we might be in similar situations who come up with a great idea and just don't know what the next steps are, or how do you balance that with everything, family life, clinical practice, being a surgeon, coming up with this great idea, but then creating the business plan around it. And and then where it is today, I, I truly think what you've developed is going to change all of surgery for the future and eye care. And I'm not being exaggerating. I just I know even as, as an optometrist who sees some of these patients after a cataract surgery, the ability to eliminate issues that could come with, with tilt of a lens or in or refractive error that we don't expect or fibrosis of the capsule, it changes some of the results and just making it so easy, you know, I, and just having that ability to adjust in the future if some new technology comes in. I'm not exaggerating. I think this could really change the future of cataract surgery and eye care, but I want to start with... I want you to walk me through kind of just getting everybody to know you. I've been lucky to get to know you, but but through your personal background, where did you grow up? Um, were there any early influences that inspired you to become an ophthalmologist
2: and then an entrepreneur? Sure. Well, I actually grew up in Michigan. Um, I grew up in, you know, rural, very, very rural Michigan, uh, Barry County, I actually went to uh, Place called Delton, uh, Delton Kellogg High Schools, where I went. I grew up actually on a dirt road. We had 120 acres on a on a sort of a hobby farm. We had llamas and other animals, so I was always, uh, you know, out either mending a fence or you know tending to the animals, or I was you know trying to brush hog trails through the woods, et cetera. I was really just an outdoors kid. I was always hunting, fishing, or you know taking care of of the animals. So. I really, you know, I will say that, you know, my father's an internist. And so um, I really enjoyed the conversations around the dinner table about interesting patients. Um, sort of the the detective work my dad would do about, you know, trying to diagnose something. I thought that was really interesting. And he was a hero, you know, real hero of mine. And, and then on the other side, my grandfather was a chief master sergeant in the Air National Guard. And a real kind of fix anything kind of guy. And I was always by his side. And so we would take apart diesel engines or we would draw plans up to build a new barn or, you know, we'd rebuild a boat motor, like just anything that needed to be fixed. He would fix it, but he would bring me along. And I always was interested to watch him take things apart and put them back together and fix things. So. I would say that early on, I really enjoyed like the, the scientific aspect of, of, of medical diagnoses, but also really the practical aspect of figuring out how do things work, taking things apart and rebuilding and fixing things. And I, th- I think those two sides blossomed in ophthalmology for me.
1: That's a great combination. I love that. You know, when we worked together, it was actually in 2013, and you had introduced or started Omega Thalmis. You remember you having all these drawings and this concept. And, you know, and I kept thinking, wow, this is brilliant. I wonder if, if anybody's ever thought of that. And, and really, if you look at patents and IP, no one had. And, and you were well on your way to, you know, disrupting the oil industry with that concept. At least that's what I felt like. When you, when you first were showing me these renditions and these ideas, what drove you to make the leap from, you know, being a surgeon and a physician to an entrepreneur and starting up an innovative business and something that could change, you know, millions of lives and cataract surgery as we know it?
2: Well, I mean... <laughs> It's probably a couple of things. Um, The naivete of youth uh, would be one. Um, Not really knowing my weaknesses, (laughs) probably, Um, you know, being bold. Um, But also, I'll just say that, you know, I I look at the inventions and the technology that we have um, with a heart of gratitude. You know, I think about Charlie Kelman and, you know, what he means to me every day when I go to do FACO, you know, I just sort of think about what if he had stopped? What if he just, what if this great idea just died with him um, on the back of a napkin? Um, What if he, you know, what if other ophthalmologists or, you know, engineers did not invent the foldable IOL or the Toric IOL or LASIK, you know, think about Marguerite McDonald and all the folks down at LSU that, you know, brought that technology forward. So, I work with technology that I recognize that there was a lot of hard work that went into giving me those tools, and you know it would be very, I guess, bold or maybe even arrogant to say I know that this is going to work and it's going to change the industry. But I have a very strong feeling, and I and I have since I thought of this from the very first moment that this could disrupt and change the way we pursue cataract surgery forever and even thinking about technology inside the eye, when we talk about that. Sometimes people think, Oh, that's sort of pie in the sky, but you know, it starts with an enabling technology. Once you have a new platform, it it makes the possibilities of what else can now exist inside the eye almost limitless. So we do have some pretty practical ideas for how, The Gemini refractive capsule can can help cataract surgery today and make it better. But we really have, we really think about this as this sort of phased adoption happens, hopefully, in the future. We feel like this could be, you know, sort of enabling a whole new pipeline of technology uh, that has really never been thought of before.
1: It's a great time to go into that. Um, You know, and then we'll look at, at other aspects of, you know, young other Colleagues, uh, surgeons, optometrists, ophthalmologists who have ideas, how do they balance their surgical practice and all of that. But right now is a good time to kind of take us through a little bit more of of really the Omega Gemini refractive capsule. How does it work? How, how is it the implantation process? Um, how does it work with the current IOLs that are, are available and, and what is the real benefit for now and in the future?
2: Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like an inner tube or a donut that goes inside of the natural capsular bag um, at the end of cataract surgery, once you've removed cortex. So basically you've got this, it's made of uh, medical grade silicone, the same type of silicone that IOLs are made out of. And it goes in through the same type, the same size incision through the same type of shooter and it, in and itself expands. So once you inject it into the capsular bag, it opens up and you basically have the capsular space now stented open in in a three dimensional fashion, and at that point, because the, that 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 real estate is really important because it is you know the safest place to implant um, you know a medical device really in the human body because there's no nerve endings and there's no blood vessels so the, the the lens capsule is the thickest basement membrane in the human body it is safely holds millions of implants per year, you know every year safely for decades and it's actually in the you know central axis of our visual system so this i really think that the capsule is sort of the most disrespected real estate and maybe some of the most important real estate to protect in the human body and so if we can keep that space that capsular space open if we prevent capsular collapse and fib It really allows us to think differently about what is cataract surgery. You know, the lens we implant in the year 2021 in a 50 year old or 40 year old, for example, you know, they're stuck with that technology for the rest of their life. They live another 40 or 50 years. You know, we know that the design cycle in, in IOLs is is accelerating. And I don't do, I don't implant any lenses, any, any you know, premium IOLs today that were available 10 years ago. And I know the lenses that I implant today as good as they are. I'm so pleased with the technology we have right now, but I just know it's going to continue to get better. And so this idea of keeping the space that that holds a lens open, it really enables us to You know, if a patient wants a better lens in the future, or for example, that one in a hundred or two in a hundred patients who are not satisfied with their multifocal lens for, for reasons that we can discuss, you know, it's just really hard to predict who those people are going to be. But if that's the case, we have a backup plan. If we need to remove the IOL, we're removing it from this protected environment. We're not trying to tease, you know, haptics away from a fibrose capsule, Um, We're also showing that um, we're reducing PCO. So by keeping the anterior and posterior capsule leaflets from fusing, we're actually preventing the mesenchymal epithelial um, transformation that occurs, you know, that tissue becomes more fibrous and contractile. And if we keep that capsule open, it really just looks like a natural lens capsule. It doesn't become phymotic and, and fibrosis really seems to be stunted. And it's just amazing to see. It just looks beautiful in the eye. So we, we look at this as a technology that's going to help us with lens position. So we can really predict where the lens is going to sit inside the eye preoperatively to a hopefully a greater degree. It's going to hopefully prevent PCO. So if we need to do secondary interventions like lens exchanges or upgrades, that's going to be uh, very easy. And also we've got additional space that we're, that we're holding open. And so if we need to put a, you know, a long-term glaucoma drug implant, for example, or even something as crazy as a, a wireless pressure sensor, we have the space inside of this inert capsule to do that and really, in, you know, continue to protect and enhance patients' vision throughout their lifetime.
1: That's extremely exciting. Exciting to know when this will be available. So how far along are we now with this technology uh, in terms of the process uh, development, um, patients implanted, and, and even an FDA process, Gary?
2: Yeah. So we have taken, the, you know, the past, you know, number of years to prototype um, and we've really been in, in an R&D phase where we're we're making little changes, we're testing them outside the U.S. on small groups of patients. And then if we see something, an opportunity to improve that device, we'll make another incremental change, or maybe we'll make a couple of incremental changes and retest the device. So far, we have almost 100 implants um, in various designs uh, throughout the world that have been very, very well tolerated. We're so happy with that. Uh, but our, we've really kind of come to a design lock where we're really happy with the size, the shape, um, just the performance of the device is really um, where it needs to be. So we really are, are at this at this point. We're pivoting from a research and development. Prototyping phase, more into um, you know deciding where we go from here. Which the next steps would probably be either a early feasibility study or a true feasibility study. Hopefully, um, you know, leading to a pivotal trial uh, with the FDA. Um, You know, we're sort of evaluating our options right now because we do have a pretty good number. We've got about thirty patients at this point. Some are at six months, others are at three months. Where we're really looking at the data, the data is looking so strong that we're we're really just sort of evaluating our options of next steps because we have you know there there's some interest, of course, you know I mean and and uh, we're just kind of evaluating where we go from here. But the next steps really would be to t- take this, I think, into the U.S. And, and through the FDA process, and that's a multi-year fa- you know process and and but those steps are pretty well developed and with the results that we've achieved outside the U.S., we feel like. Repeating that inside the U.S. would would really not be um, problematic. Uh, we f- we feel like we know what we would get b- based on our numbers and and how safe and effective the device is.
1: That's really exciting, you know. And, and at the same time, it, you know, I could see why there would be a lot of interest. This is a truly a platform change, which we've not had since perhaps when IOL's you know, Faco first came out and the ability to implant them. And I could see so many of the advantages of this for the long term. Even as a thinking from a patient perspective, the ability to, to wonder what's going to come out next. Should I wait? Well, don't have to worry about that. If something does come out and we know it's going to only improve over time, that gives you some optionability, so to speak. That's a word to allow for that. Uh, that's exciting. Uh, from your experience thus far, you know, um, what's been the big, biggest challenges in development of any new technology for those mm-hmm. who've got an idea and starting to think about it and bringing a new product to market? Because you're, you're well on your way to that. What, what have you found to be Something that maybe others haven't thought of as you go along that you've learned through this experience.
2: I think early on, it's probably just having the confidence in yourself to really decide that your idea is good enough to pursue. Uh, I think that you know sometimes it's easy to think, uh, well, you know, my idea probably isn't good enough, or, or maybe you know someone else has probably thought of this, or you know, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should just stick to my day job. Um, so I think early on, it's just being confident enough that this is, you know, if you've got a good idea, um, if you, you know, this is something John Birdall has said, so I want to give him credit, but he said, you know, it's got to pass the sleep test. You know, you've got to have an idea that, you know, you sleep on it a couple of nights and you can't poke holes in it. And it's like, you almost can't not do it. And that's really how this was. I just really felt like, you know, this could be something that's really important. And for whatever reason, this idea was, you know, given to me and uh, maybe it's, maybe it's my, my job, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. So I, I think part of it is just going for it just understanding, you know, being confident in yourself. But, you know, then it's, there's just a lot of, you know, good ideas really distilled down into a lot of hard work. You know, the problem is you see how good it could be at the end from the very beginning, the blurry part is that middle, that messy middle, or the long middle. And so, I think that the, the challenge is always, you know, making sure you're well capitalized, making sure that the people that you're talking to that you're under non-disclosure agreement, that you have good patent attorneys who are protecting your idea. These are all the things I'm telling any you know anyone could kind of figure out that those would be the hard things. But I think particular to developing um, class three medical devices, which in the FDA parlance that means Devices that go inside the body and stay there, okay? So IOLs, um, any medical implant that's designed to stay inside the body, you know, finding the engineers, finding the manufacturing facilities. And then a real challenge is in any sort of developmental process, there's going to be some trial and error that occurs where you have to prototype you have to test you have to learn some things and then you have to redesign and retest and so you know the design cycle it takes some time it takes some time to make these devices you know to do the engineering to get the molds to do the manufacturing and then to get a trial set up actually to go you know do the imp- you know get approval do the implants and then analyze the data and make a smart decision on how you should change your device so you only get about one or two turns per year to change your device. And so it just takes a while. Um, and, and, and you think that, you know, you should get it right away. But, you know, they're just not, this is not how it works. I was listening to a podcast uh, from, from Dyson, the guy who made the vacuum cleaner. And he, he did something like over 5,000 different vacuum cleaners before he got it right you know, so doing about, you know, 10 or so of these, I felt a little better about myself that we got it in about 10 tries versus uh, Dyson who had to go over 5,000 different vacuum cleaners before he got it right. So. That's incredible. Yeah.
1: But the number of filaments I think Edison went through is an astronomical yeah. number. And
0: yeah, it just goes exactly.
1: that persistent. They kept that positive attitude of saying, "Well, I, just eliminated one more potential design that won't work. But yeah, you're right in 10 relative to it. Now, that's still a lot of work, uh, you know, and a lot goes into that. You're constantly kind of thinking, how do you balance all that? You've had a very successful surgical practice and uh, and, and a phenomenally good surgeon, but you also very well-respected community. You're a great family man um, and active in many ways, church and other things, plus now entrepreneurial. How do you balance all of that so well?
2: Yeah, I mean – I think you have to be pretty strategic in what you say no to. Um, If you say, someone once said, if you say yes to one thing, be prepared to say no to, you know, a hundred things. So, you know, I I recognize that, you know, I have limited capacity to do a whole lot of things. So I'm not going out and giving a lot of dinner talks. Um, I'm not writing a lot of journal articles. You know, there's a long list of things that I don't do that a lot of my colleagues who are really at the top of their game are really. Heavily participating in, so you know, I've I've told a lot of people know for a long time. Actually, I'm almost a little bit worried that people are going to stop asking me to to give talks or to do things. But maybe when I'm done with this, I'll I'll be able to throw my hat back in the ring with some of those things. But you know, I I think it's really understanding um, what you're good at, um, what you want to do, and designing your life around that. And then also, there's some good fortune. You know, my partner Lance Ferguson you know, he is just one of the best guys around. He gives me a lot of freedom to, you know, pursue some of these things, um, you know, a, a day or two a week. So I'm not in surgery or in clinic, you know, five days a week and just doing this nights and weekends. So he's a great partner. And then also I just have to say my spouse, you know, my wife, Mary is just, I mean, you just, you just thank God that you have a good spouse and, you know, she takes care of so many things and, you know, I just can't, I, you know, it's, it's easy when you look at, you know, say, well, how do you do all this? Well, I don't do it all. You know, it's, it's the people around me that take care of a lot of things. I'm just fortunate to be, you know, in their company. It's really great.
1: It is a small world. I mean, Lance Ferguson's who introduced me to my spouse, you know yeah, that, exactly. Ironically, and all that. He's a great guy and a great surgeon as well. Um, from your experience thus far, you've um, you know you you've gotten through all of these steps. You've learned along the ways what could you know assist other you know entrepreneurs as they go from you know this ideal of development to products such as the Gemini capsule and and all of the steps in there. So I guess your main encouragement is just to keep going at it, keep trying. I and mean, you have an idea if it gives, meets the sleep tests, just keep
2: moving forward. Yeah, I do. I think that not you know not every idea is a good one. I think it's important that you talk to some people who will give you wise counsel. That would be the other thing is find a neutral third party, um pitch the idea, find another person, pitch the idea. If the consensus opinion is that this is not a great thing, you know maybe think twice about this. But you know if you can explain your idea and and there's some genuine excitement around it. Um, I think that that's another good way to kind of, you know, test market things before you get too deep. You know, there gets to be a point where you're kind of past a point of no return where you really kind of need to succeed. And, um, you know, that's a little stressful also, but you know, it, 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 yeah, you want to make sure that you're vetting this with smart people that you're not just pursuing any idea. You want to pick your spot because you only have a few, you probably have a few turns of the wheel, you know, in these, and so you got to make sure that you're that you're picking the right thing. If you have that itch to scratch.
1: That is great. There's so many steps to the success too. And, you know, besides the development mm-hmm. and, and you've had to do the testing in, in various countries and, and I get success, keep the data as, has there been funding? How do, how do you achieve those sort of things? Has that been a challenge? I imagine not so, because it's such a great idea or is that a whole different world that has its own challenges too, for those who might have an idea and have to look at all those
2: steps. Yeah. I mean, I would just have to say again, as I've talked about, you know, the people I've partnered with, you know, I, I, I'm, I'd I'm be remiss if I didn't mention our CEO, Rick Ifland. Um, he has been a serial entrepreneur for, you know, 20, 30 years and um, just done a phenomenal job of raising money for other companies. And so I brought him in as our CEO very early on, and that was probably the best decision that I, that I could have made. Um, he has raised, you know, all of our money uh, pretty much through friends and family. So we've only had basically angel rounds of investing and we've been able to keep, you know, we, we've not taken any uh, venture capital or, or private equity capital at this point. So it's, it's made it really simple. Um, and we've, I think, you know, just based on some good relationships that he and I both have. And a lot of those have been, you know, op- optometrists and ophthalmologists also. So um, getting some people who really understand the space to invest is also a good photo confidence. But, you know, I know this is really, and I almost hate to say this because I don't want to jinx it, but and it usually is a real challenge for a lot of startups. But we have just been so incredibly lucky to have to be well capitalized really from the beginning. Um, just through through Rick's relationships, and and I think the idea has sort of um, you know stood on on its own merits. So we've we've not had that huge challenge, but I don't I don't want to say it's not a challenge because every time we always you know hope and pray that you know our investors will come through, and 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 it's been great so far. That's awesome.
1: Is there anything you think that us or any listeners or anyone that because we do have a lot you know listeners for os Podcast range from. Your ophthalmological colleagues and surgeons, optometrists, investors, strategics, any there there could help, or is this kind of just kind of on its way and moving in its own with its own momentum at this point?
2: Well, I mean, I think I would just challenge everyone, you know, to to think about, you know, it's it's sort of the Steve Jobs, like think differently about cataract surgery and ophthalmology. You know what we're doing is is not changing the optics you know we're not inventing a new multifocal lens or a new accommodating lens or but but what we are really trying to do is build a platform technology that is going to enable so many other things you know for the future um, i think it's going to start with us you know getting some sort of claim around you know just you know preventing capsular fibrosis perhaps or preventing capsule collapse or, and we're still working through, through that, that piece of it. But I would just challenge everyone to sort of think, what if you had a protected space inside the eye that was extant, that kept the capsule open, prevented fibrosis and allowed any inert secondary technology to live inside the eye? What would you put inside of that container? How would you leverage that space? So it's a lot. It's a lot bigger than just, you know, we're creating a, an implant that is going to help, you know, with IOL exchanges. I think that's sometimes people think, well, why, why would you go through the, this hassle of inventing this thing that is going to, you know, maybe help one or 2% of people who end up with a, a lens exchange? And I feel like, you know, I I, I think it's just much bigger than that. I, when You know, we know that lens exchanges are a rare thing and I'm not inventing this capsule so that we can make lens exchanges easier. Although that is one thing that can, can be helped by this. I look at the multifocal market and think, why is it stuck at like seven or 8%? You know, technology has gotten better, but there's so many surgeons out there who are really unwilling to try it. And, and I think it's because as ophthalmologists, as cataract surgeons, and especially refractive surgeons, we hate disappointing people you know, one of my deepest, you know, I'm I'm going to give you the peek behind the curtain here that you, you didn't ask for, but one of my deepest fears as a cataract and refractive surgeon is disappointing a patient. You know, they come to me and we're talking about fundamentally changing the way they perceive everything in their world through their eyes. You know, when we talk about refractive surgery, people think about, well, 2020 or 2015 vision, but we're really talking about enhancing neurologic function. And the reality is it doesn't always work. And when it doesn't work, how do you explain that to a patient? And how do you tell them, Hey, you're going to be okay. We have options, you know, right now with cataract surgery, if something if, if the patient doesn't like the lens they implant or we implant, you know, there, there are backup plans, but I feel like we need better options for patients. And I sort of think about it also like a seatbelt, you know, I'm thankful that a seatbelt is, in, is invented the rare times that I need it, but I always use it, you know, because I know there's always a small chance that I'm going to need it. So I kind of think about what we're doing in, in some regard as like an insurance policy or a seatbelt. And if we use it and it's there, it, it will be there for us when we need it. I
1: love that. It's a great
2: way of putting it.
1: Gary, thanks for joining us today sharing your story, your insights, your humble person that you are, but just the the potential that exists here and a very exciting technology that I do believe will change how cataract surgery is done in the future. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you?
2: You can, uh, you can probably just email me. That's the best way. 2020md at gmail.com. Pretty easy to uh, remember that one. Or you can, uh, you can find me on Twitter at cataractmd. pretty active on Twitter. So uh, you might see, you'll see a lot of um, cataract and, and uh, ophthalmology links there. And also a few uh, of my opinions about UK basketball and football. So <laughs> go big blue.
1: <laughs> oh, big blue is right. Big game this weekend. So we start yes. the see. Gary, thanks so much for your time. It's great seeing you. Look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully very soon. I guess we, I think we are going to see you soon, but thank you for taking yes. the
2: time to share these insights with the OAS podcast audience. Absolutely. Thank you, Paul. It's always great catching up. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the OIS podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our iTunes channel so you get the latest ophthalmology insights. Got a story of your own to tell? Apply to be a guest at OIS.net.